Welcome to my podcast. This is David Suisa. The big question is, why is there such a distance, a growing distance, between the Jews of America and the Jews of Israel? Today, my dear friend, John Moskowitz, who is Rabbi Emeritus at Holy Blossom Temple in Toronto and author of Evolution of an Unorthodox Rabbi. Welcome, John. <laughs> Pleasure to be here, David, with my... Morocco and Montreal Angelino friend. Well, we're going to have so much to talk about because you're, you're a quirky character. You know, you're technically you're in the reform world, but you're also, you, you, you really challenge the, the denomination where you come from. And I, I read your book, Evolution of an Unorthodox Rabbi. Why don't you uh, summarize your journey in a, in a couple of minutes for our listeners? I grew up in St. Louis, moved to L.A. when I was 18 to go to college here in Claremont. Uh, fell in accidentally with Tom Hayden in the early 1972. I was then planning to go to British Columbia to take formal training as a Gestalt therapist. I had done some Gestalt already in Claremont. Um, I met Hayden. He came to teach at Pitzer. I was bowled over by this remarkable man whom I remember watching in 1966 on Meet the Press with my father. My father and I watched. Hayden had just come back from meetings in Hanoi with the Vietnamese. The Meet the Press, the Meet the Press people, Spivak, if you remember him, from those black and white days, pressed Hayden, who was this young up-and-coming guy. Hayden stood tall, ramrod straight, wouldn't give in to their bullying. At the end of the half hour, my father said to me, that's a man to watch. And when I met him in 72, I was instantly drawn to his intelligence and uh, to his passion and fell in with him, kind of accidentally, in the anti-war movement. And so you were a 60s child. Were you a hippie, long hair? I was a little bit young because in 72, I was 20. So okay. I wasn't in the midst of the 60s, but the 60s influenced me. Um, I had that iconic photograph of Huey Newton in my bedroom. You know, spear in one hand, rifle in the other, wicker chair. Huey's sitting there powerfully. Huey was a hero of mine. So, too, was Atticus Finch. And uh, so I was inspired by that. And the music of the era. Did you look like a hippie? I did. And the music, yes. The Motown, Simon and Garfunkel, Joni Mitchell. It feels like so long ago, John, and yet my, my kids love the music of the 60s. There's something about the 60s that really helped define our country. It was a, a passionate time and an innocent time. It seemed like an awful long time ago. I'm, as you know, I'm writing about it now in a kind of a half memoir, half social history, and um, trying to capture exactly that kind of that world that was so um, um, defining, but it's largely gone. And how did you transition from the '60s to the rabbinate? Well. Uh, interestingly enough, I grew alienated from the left. I was still a leftist. I remained one for a long time. But um, I grew alienated by all the wonderful um, love for the Vietnamese 10,000 miles away, but a rather sneering attitude toward Americans down the block. This was in 73, 74, and when I went back to Claremont to go, to co- go back to college, I, uh, I went back, I told myself I was going to study political theory to have an understanding of what I had been doing the last several years, a couple of years anyway. Um, I got bored of reading Marxism, and I turned to Jewish things. One thing led to another, and I decided that I wanted to be an academic in Middle East studies. Um, I went to see our friend Bill Cutter at the Hebrew Union College. Turns out that his father and my grandfather knew one another well from St. Louis, Cutter said, do you want to be a rabbi? I said, absolutely not. One thing led to another, and I eventually applied to the rabbinic school. Not to be a rabbi, but to learn. That's how I got there. Mm-hmm. And how, did, how long did that go? How long was I a rabbi? No, how long did you study? Six years at HUC, mm-hmm. and then I studied at UCLA in the history graduate program for three years. Right, and you're a controversial figure in the reform movement because, I mean, you're, you're brave. You, you've written things, and I read your book on, on uh, 
confessions of an unorthodox rabbi. And over the years, you've, you've been pretty outspoken. And recently, you sent me this piece that I found absolutely fascinating on the stagnation of liberal Judaism. And you even called it an antidote for the stagnation of liberal Judaism. Why don't you tell me what you mean by the stagnation of liberal Judaism? Um, first, by liberal Judaism, I mean everything to the left of modern orthodoxy. So it covers the reform, conservative movements, Reconstructionists, and their cousins. What I mean is that that world, which was once a great world, first couple of generations of liberal Judaism in Europe and in America at the beginning, has now become hollowed out. Um, there isn't learning there, there isn't literacy there, there isn't love of Israel in any particular depth. What there is, and I say this in the piece, there is a, um, an ability to engender a sense of belonging. People need to belong. They need to believe in something, but the something they believe in in the liberal movements is tikkun olam and social justice, not in theology. Um, and the, the most distressing part, which I call the elephant in the room, unspoken about, of course, is the illiteracy. And by illiteracy, I mean both Hebraically and in terms of ideas. Right. You the say that, uh, that, you know, it, they create inspiring, often trans more transformative life cycle moments that liberal Judaism accomplishes, you know, several things very well, and, and that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it also extends a hand to those in need, and you even write, none of these are small matters. So you're speaking really from the inside, John. Mm -hmm. you don't, you're not like some orthodox rabbi that's kind of stereotyping and uh, the, the, the non-orthodox movement. This is stuff that you know intimately, mm -hmm. right? And it's good stuff, right? but it's not much in the end. It's not, it's it not enough. It doesn't sustain individual Jews or communities in the long run. Yeah, because one of the things that interested me about your piece is that you start off with a confession of a mistake. And you said that in 1976, you confidently predicted that Orthodox Judaism would be gone within two or three generations. That uh, modernity's swift sword, uh, its descent assisted by Reformed Judaism far more attuned to the times and its Jews than a sclerotic uh, tradition, and that hasn't happened. Right. Orthodoxy is thriving. I was wrong. Mm. I was way wrong. What do you th why were you wrong? I mean, uh, w what was your miscalculation? Well, number one, I was ignorant. Number two, I was arrogant. As I say somewhere in the piece, that's a lethal mix. <laughs> number three, I was 23 or 24 years old. I didn't know anything. Right. So, uh, and I, uh, I didn't, I wasn't particularly after being a rabbi, but I wanted to be at the heart of the Jews, and the rabbinate meant being at the heart of the and Jews. Are your and colleagues? I assumed that the heart of the Jews was the liberal world. I was wrong. And by the way, I was exposed to great liberal rabbis. I worked closely for two years with Sandy Reagans and Leonard Bierman at Leo Beck, two of the best preachers you'll ever find, and men of learning. But the liberal world is not a substantive world, unfortunately. And uh, do some of your liberal colleagues and reform colleagues and non-Orthodox colleagues uh, challenge you on this assessment of their movement? They tend, if you speak like I do or write like I do, the more powerful response is to ignore you mm -hmm. rather than to challenge. Mm -hmm. So I get responses from people who largely agree or who are curious not from those who disagree. Mm -hmm. Well, once this is published, it, it might, I'm sure, I anticipate that. <laughs> we'll see. It'll have some waves. So keep talking about that, This because eventually uh, I want to reassure our readers that there's a big idea that's about to be revealed on this podcast uh, that I thought was absolutely uh, terrific and possibly transformative if you look at the relationship between the Jews of America and, uh, and the Jews of Israel, which uh, a relationship that's been fraying, honestly, especially among the non-Orthodox part, right? Why yes, do you think and, that and is? 
What you're referring to, I think, is that my piece is not simply a critical piece of the of liberal Judaism, but rather presents or also presents an answer. Mm -hmm. And the answer, I suggest, is a very simple one, and that is a promotional campaign led by the Reform and Conservative movements, the head of their movements, it has to be, and the rabbis, for Aliyah, liberal Aliyah, whereby only, I'm saying, if one Jew per liberal congregation per year makes Aliyah, that's about 1,000 or so a year, that's 10,000 without natural growth over 10 years, and it has the possibility of changing both Israel, liberalizing Israel in ways that it needs to be liberalized, and also changing American liberal Judaism, because there's a bridge back from those who've made Aliyah, ideally. And if you're going to promote Aliyah, you have to promote literacy, Hebrew, ideas, to equip people when they're going to make Aliyah. And one Jew per congregation, we're sitting across the street from a congregation that has Several thousand people, I imagine, Wilshire Boulevard Temple, or it's, yeah. thereabouts. Uh, so the large ones is just one per congregation, and it could change. Now, it's going to require the leadership to want to do this, and that will be a test of our leadership. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's so interesting because in the Orthodox world, they have nefesh benefesh, right? But technically, it's not Orthodox, but it turns out that the majority of the American Jews who make Aliyah are in the Orthodox community. What is it, over 90% perhaps? Yeah, well, I don't know the exact figure, but you're saying, like, don't give it up to the Orthodox. Um, which I'm I, sa what I'm saying is join the Orthodox. Join the Jews. Be a part of the Jewish nation and do it in your way. I'm not saying that liberal Jews have to accommodate to a more conservative uh, Right. Ethos. Right, right. You, you, you quote someone from Israel, Enat Wilf, to try to capture the, the ethos of the Israeli Jew, and you say that, you know, most of them don't really care about what's happening at the Western Wall and egalitarian prayer and a lot of these issues that American Jews care about so deeply. It's just you not know, a big deal for what, the average Israeli. What right? Wilf, who is, I think, a very attractive leader and one, as I say in the piece, I hope might be prime minister one day, says, is if you guys, meaning you American Jews, think... Attractive, you mean uh, smart and all that. I just want to clarify that. <laughs> We're living in the, in the crazy Me Too world. So you meant politically. Sure, David. Yeah, that's okay. what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You see how cautious I've become? I've, wow. Yeah, pretty impressive. Uh, that's the, w the way the world is. But Wilf is the one, and she knows Israel from the inside. And she's a liberal who says to us, you know, don't think that we're paying much attention to your desires to... Right. Um, that's not our... Ma our concern is existential. It's not ideological, right. is what she's saying, in effect. Right. And, and if you have a... Um, if, if you have an aliyah movement among Jews who really, really care about these things, you'll say you're, what you're saying is that you can have hope of really making a difference. For sure. Um, and... And uh, Israelis will welcome significant aliyah from liberal Jewish America. There's no question about that. Right. Now, do you think there's a potential conflict? I often find that Israel is becoming, in a way, a very uh, sort of Sephardic Orthodox kind of society. By that, I mean, you know, even though most of them will not be Torah observant, they won't be Shomer Shabbat, but they still, when they go to synagogue, they... They like to go to traditional synagogue with the mechitza and everything. So there's no, there's not that sort of craving for alternate denominations that we have here in America. So you have, and and that's really a an Israeli sort of quirk that you rarely find here in America. The Jew who never goes to synagogue, but when they go, it's got to be an Orthodox one, right? right? And it's and it's a Israeli quirk that many Americans have trouble understanding. Right, but you also have, as you well know, uh, a plethora of uh, smaller synagogue communities that have grown up in the last 15 or 20 years. In Israel, you mean? In Israel, Shira Hadashah was mm -hmm. the leader with Tova Hartman, and there are others that um, are traditional 
and yet have a kind of a liberal ethos, even though they may have a mechitza, most of them do, of some a smaller mechitza, but it has it has a kind of a liberal ethos and pushes the halakha to the limit that it can be pushed to. It's within the Orthodox world, obviously. Right. There is the rebellious gene in Israeli society. There's the spiritual movement when the Israelis who come back from the Far East and they do these festivals in the, in the desert during Sukkot, during Shalosh Regalim. So there is that rebellious gene. Whether it can be translated into the American version of strict denominations, you know, that's an, that's an open question. But what you're saying is, you know, the bigger picture here is that the actual move, the aliyah, the, the, the action of moving has all kinds of potential ancillary benefits, right? So, uh, because right now, if you look, it's not just obviously the, the Western Wall, is you're looking at the classic problem of the settlements and what to do about the two-state solution and the, the rift between American Jews and the government, uh, BB, the, the, the nation-state law, um, the LGBT rights that recently, there's so many issues that are splitting both communities apart. And what you're saying is you think this one movement could be the start of reconciliation. I'm not sure I'd go that far. I think it's an antidote to liberal Judaism here in America, or for mm -hmm. liberal Judaism. And I think, yes, it would have an impact on Israel. I, I don't think it's, to, to say it's a, a, a bridge toward reconciliation, maybe a bridge too That's far. too far. Maybe a bridge yeah. too far. I think the divide, uh, as we know, is, is real. Uh, American and North American Jews tend to look through the lens of ideology, and in the last 20 years in particular, a leftist ideology. Israelis tend to look through the lens of defense, security, and peoplehood. Mm. And American Jews, Canadian Jews too, were less about peoplehood than we are about politics. Mm. You see, what struck me about your piece, John, is that you took Israel from an idea to something real, and that's what happens. I have two kids who live there now, and it, it, it's a complete, it, the, the best way to understand Israel is to really be there on the ground. And I think one of the biggest reasons for this rift is in, in America, it's really an idea. And it's seen as sometimes, a, a, you know, for lack of a better word, like a theoretical idea. And there's a lack of understanding of really Israeli reality. Well, yes, and it, it's an idea with which we fell in love um, not so much after the 48 war, but certainly after the 67 war. However... An idea and an ideal. Yeah, exactly. However, that changed. It changed in 82 with the Lebanon war. Changed to a degree even in, after the 73 war. But once you had for the first time a Likud government in power in 77 with Begin, the idea and the ideal for American Jews became less than attractive. And the divide started there in a, in a big way. And the falling out of love with Israel started then. I interesting enough, Begin, of course, was a classical European liberal. Right. And um, Yeah, I'm always torn on that one because on the one hand, there's stuff that drives me nuts that I see Israel doing. And on the other hand, I'm saying, well, this is what the Israeli voters decided, you know? They're the ones that are sending their kids to, to, to the to war to like risk their lives. So in a way, I always feel like, who am I to tell them? Like, what new information do I have that they don't know? What can I add to the conversation, right? So who am I to tell them that I know what's better for you, better than you do? Like, they've made, they've calculated the whole thing when they make their choices of who they want to represent them. And they've balanced all the trade-offs, and they've decided that this government is the least bad alternative, because for whatever reason, and it could be that security and the existential crisis is top of mind. So I've always been reluctant, although I've written a lot of critical articles, certainly against the chief rabbinate and the and the Haredi power grabs, and there's so much about the country that I think can be improved. But for some reason, I don't have the arrogance 
of telling an Israeli voter that I know what's better for you better than you do? You don't because you don't live there. You have a big state, your daughters, your people, but you don't live there. Therefore, you don't quite have the right, same right that they do. David Chazoni put it, I think, well in a piece which I believe you commissioned, mm-hmm. a recent piece in the journal, where he said something to the effect that he's not a fan of the occupation, but given the alternative and given what has been learned from Oslo and given what was learned after the turnover of Gaza, neither is he willing to turn that land over yet to a Palestinian leadership which is not prepared yet to make peace with Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the other thing that I notice is, you know, in all my study of Israel, when I go there and everything I've seen, there's so much criticism already happening. There, there's so much dissent within Israeli mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. So I'm saying, uh, do they need mine? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right, there's right. this enormous corrective mechanism. Right. It's already happening. Right. There are thousands of social justice organizations. Right. right in my building here in Koreatown, there's the New Israel Fund. Right. And they funded over 900 organizations, you know, over the years that are constantly trying to make Israel better. So it's not as if we come here from America saying, you guys are missing the boat because you're not arguing enough. You're not challenging your government enough. You're not challenging the injustices enough, right? Israel is not the kind of country that fails to challenge itself or try to become better, right? Mm -hmm. So what are we adding? Well, there's also a, a sense that we're fractured enough to begin with. And one has to think twice about adding to those divides. Yeah, you know, there was a piece by uh, Ronald Lauder, the head of, you know, World Jewish Congress, and it was in the New York Times, and he just beats up Israel. You know, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> but, I love Israel. But, you know, yeah. but, and he makes it look like this new nation-state law is a huge disaster. And if you're an average reader and you read this and you're saying, oh, my God, Israel is just uh, going to hell in a handbasket and they've abandoned their democratic ideals. And it just... It well, as you and I know, it's, it's actually more simple than that. I have no doubt but that, um, number one, I'd be very surprised if Lauder wrote the piece himself. I think it's more likely that his PR person wrote it. He said, yes, I agree with it and they decided that the best audience is the Times audience. And for whatever reason, Lauder is shifting, and he wants his shift to be seen by the Times constituency rather than another one. I suspect that. Now, why he shifted is an interesting question. Is he tired of Bibi? Did Bibi turn him off? Um, Is he looking to uh, a Democratic administration in 2020? Does he hate Trump? Those are all possibilities. The agendas that we don't see. Mm. So how do we love? How do we love? I'm always asking myself uh, that because, you know, for those who are strongly supportive of Israel, the accusation is that they're blind supporters. Right. Right? Which I always find a little insulting. Yeah, sure. Uh, So how do you love? How do you love Israel in a way that's rich, that's deep, that's meaningful? without uh, patronizing Israelis and telling them that we know what's better for you, better than you do. The glue, the bridge, the way toward love is peoplehood. One of the reasons I suggested the proposal of the massive aliyah, or significant aliyah from liberal congregations, is it would up the ante on peoplehood. That's not where we're strongest right now, but it is where we need to be strong, both for the health of liberal congregations in North America, as well as for the Jewish people. So when you have a love of one's people, number one, lots of things are forgiven. Number two, you see the world differently. Number three, there's a stronger bridge amongst uh, peoples. How realistic is that, though, John? Not very. Because, (laughs) thanks. Uh, Because if you look at, I mean, uh, liberal Judaism, if anything, it's gone in the other direction because one of the great, you know, the, the great religion in America today is the religion of inclusion and universalism, right? So if I show my peoplehood, I may offend my Korean buddy, right, who's not Jewish. So how did we get to this point where peoplehood is becomes, has become a problematic word? 
I think when Israel began to be seen as illiberal, which was more or less the same time that liberal Jews moved and lurched leftward, there's where you have the divide. And peoplehood thereby becomes, as you say, a dirty word, something to be avoided, certainly illiberal, which it hardly is. There's another aspect to this. Um, I think I may have shared with you that I've become addicted to East Africa. Safari. I've been on three safaris in the last eight or nine years. I probably will go on another one in January. You're invited take to come, oh, David. Oh, take me with you. I've never been. Oh, I, you I, must go. I'm, you know, when we're finished here, I'm going to send you the details of this. It's a remarkable thing. Uh, we can do a tag team in South Africa, by the way, because they what? want me to speak there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did I, I, you must, then, do you go as far? How far south do you go? Um, this is going to be in Kenya, but okay. you can easily fly from... Um, Nairobi to Cape Town, or we've never talked about this oh, part then, of you, then, John. Then, then let's yeah. let's let's talk about it, David. How Look, did you connect? I, I, I'm going to tell you how I, I connected through th this remarkable set of brothers named Kielberger out of Toronto, who do great things in East Africa, and they invited me to join them on one of their trips. It's a working trip where you build villages and you build schools in uh, the Maasai Mara district of Kenya. That was the first time. We went on a safari um, right afterward. I've been back twice, and I'm going again. Now, here's what I learned. The first time I go on safari, I'm blown away, first by the beauty of the savannas, but more by something that I see that really does blow my mind. I see the animals, whether it was the lions or the giraffes or the wildebeest. It doesn't matter. I see them acting like humans. I see them herding. I see them shunning the weak. I see affection, especially from a mother to a baby. And the more I look, the more I see human behavior. And you can't quite see your own behavior as well as you can in a mirror. Mm. They, the animals, became a mirror for me. When I got back, I read about evolution. I read Freud, things I had read before, but with a different eye. We humans heard. That means when a mass, when a group, led by its leaders, whether it's animals or humans, goes in one direction, about 98% will follow. That's what's become of the liberal Jewish world. And so we've lurched leftward. We've lurched away from anything we perceive to be illiberal. We shun those who disagree with us. And there is your divide right there. Come to East Africa, David. Oh can't wait but i did read a line just to go back to what you were saying yeah. that I, I don't know where i read that but uh they don't build hospitals and animals don't make hospitals humans do we build hospitals because we care we take care of the weak you know so we might be a herd but you know the animals may you know leave the weak behind because they can't afford to take care of them but we, uh, we as humans can aspire to that higher level where we could embrace the weak and take care of them. Right. Uh, here's how I think about this. I, I ask myself... I'm sounding like a liberal now. Indeed. I asked myself when I came back from Africa the first time, okay, um, for the first time I saw up close the intimate relations between humans and animals, which suggests, and the Bible in early Genesis suggests exactly this, we come from the same creation and creator originally. How then did we get divided off from our animal brethren? Mm. The answer, my answer anyway, is through a divine touch by God. And that divine touch created a different brain. It's a brain that can think, it can manipulate to be sure, but it can do great things. It can do greater evil than the animals can do and far greater good. There's mm. your hospital. Yeah. Right? And so that's how we differentiated ourselves, or God did, for his own purposes, whatever they may have been. It's a profound experience to be where it's a great rift valley in East, eastern Kenya, actually western Kenya, where we were divided off several million years ago from the chimpanzees right and then we have also the mental capacity for subtlety yes for example this the subtlety of me loving my children more than i love the children of my neighbors yeah and yet still loving the children of my neighbors that's a great way to put it 
That's exactly right. You know, and, and, and it's complicated, John, you know, because I have a deep attachment to my Jewish people. Because when I think of the Jewish people, I just think of a, a family that has survived for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I'm, I'm part of that family, for better well, or for worse. So I have an attachment, a deep, deep attachment to that family. But at the same time, I don't want to ever feel that I could see a non-Jew and not feel that, you know, a, a love and, a, and an embracing. One of my closest friends is a... Muslim professor at UCLA that I adore. I love him, right? So at the same, it, it's really a fascinating thing. And I think what, what we're talking about today is that you can go too far in either direction, right? You can have just peoplehood at the expense of any other people. And then you can be so in love with your universalism and everything that, you know, I'm a member of the, the, the global race and there's no difference. And that complicated middle is what, where life happens, isn't it, John? I think it is. And, and David, if I may say, I think you represent that complicated middle <laughs> far better than, far more than most. You know, after all, you bridge worlds, Sephardic and Ashkenazic, uh, African and, and American, even Canadian and American, Israeli and American, you're a bridge in a way that few of us are. Yeah, but I, I think you know, that's, I, I, think I, that's I do it as a lover. I do it as I, a lover of my family. When you say like Sephardic and Ashkenazi, when I speak about that to Ashkenazi audience, I speak about it with a deep, deep, deep love for my Sephardic identity. No question. You see, that's no what's question. interesting. So if I speak to a Christian group, uh, I will fess up to my deep attachment to my people. Yeah. I fess up, yeah. right? And I, I do it, and, and then at the same time, I have a love for them too, because they're children of God. And it, it hurts me, I guess, is what I'm saying, that this idea of Jewish peoplehood has been fraying in the past few years and decades in America that many Jews haven't found a way to sort of have that balance. Lead us back. Yeah, oh no, please. <laughs> your paper is doing that. <laughs> and then where did you get your sense of peoplehood? You know, that's a great question because I grew up in a typically affluent suburban American neighborhood in St. Louis. Um, I think it came, one, because my parents had it, even if they didn't verbalize it, you could feel it in them, both of my parents. I also, when I grew alienated the first time from the left, 73 or so, um, I was searching for something that I could glom onto. It wasn't going to be the left, even as I remained on the left. And it became Israel. I went to Israel for the first time in 1970. I was 18 years old. Fell in love with it. And um, I think my sense of people grew out of my love of Israel. Mm. or grew more deeply. Right. And... I mean, through the centuries, if there's one thing that uh, nourished the sense of peoplehood was the oppression that we felt. You know, my, my ancestors in Morocco lived in a Jewish ghetto in a Muslim country. And that's organic, built-in peoplehood. They didn't really have to work that hard to have a sense of peoplehood. But in today's world, it's not that obvious. Right, but I think Sephardic Jews for the most part, even though that world was decimated several generations ago. We didn't suffer as much as you guys did. I'm not going to say that because that's not, that may be true, but that's not the point that I want to make. What I want to say is Sephardic Jews, perhaps because of less suffering, kept in their mind and in their memory a coherent whole world of their childhood that Ashkenazic Jews did not. And therefore, at the center of that world was a sense of peoplehood, a smaller sense of community, a deeper sense of Yiddishkeit. I know you didn't call it Yiddishkeit. Oh, I know Yiddishkeit. I, know. I feel it in my puppet. I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, I like that move you just made with your hand, like this idea of a neighborhood. One of the things I find most fascinating is the difference between community and neighborhood. And we were talking earlier on your miscalculation about the future of orthodoxy that you spoke about 40 years ago, and you assumed that orthodoxy would be the movement that would go away. And I had, a, I had this fascinating moment the other day in my Shabbat table when um, there was this woman who was a reform 
Jew, and they would always drive to synagogue. And I, we started talking about the Pico Robertson neighborhood. And she said, that's so unbelievable. She said, you know, every Saturday, you have like hundreds of friends in the neighborhood. And the doors are opened, and you go from one house to another. And it struck me that there's a difference between community and neighborhood. And if there's one thing that has kept orthodoxy for me, for the way I see it, is this idea of a neighborhood. So the one decision of not driving on Shabbat has you backed into creating Jewish neighborhoods, and that, if anything, helps keep the movement going. Yes, and it means that if you're part of that community, even if you're not a shul-goer um, every Shabbat, when you don't show up in Shabbat, you get calls on Sunday, are you okay? If you're part of a neighborhood as opposed to a community, that is a larger neighborhood, you won't get such calls. And therefore, community phrase. Yeah, it's so interesting because that woman I remember saying at the end of the ministry, I wish we would have done that. Yeah. Even if they wouldn't go to shul regularly, yeah. even if they wouldn't be orthodox. She yeah. said, I wish we would have done that. Just stayed as a reformed Jew and not drive on Shabbat so my kids can experience the value of neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, what else has been contributed to the success of orthodoxy as as you see it. Learning. Learning is the glue. Um, if you have a common text and you have a common language and you have a passion for the language and for the ideas and you share it with, even if in informal ways, you're going to have a, a bond with, with other Jews who do the same. My world is, as you know, far less literate and therefore it has less to discuss in common and less to be passionate about in terms of ideas uh, that are specifically Jewish. There's so much to learn. Which part of learning uh, do you have in mind? I mean, Look, I went to rabbinical school, as I, as I said to you, not to be a rabbi, but I wanted to learn texts. I wanted to be, a op be able to open a Talmud and, and read it. And I love doing that. Then I also fell in love with ideas. Ideas became the most important thing for me. So Soloveitchik, Hartman, we talked about Mayor Soloveitchik, today's, I think today's leading rabbi. Um, they are, uh, they change your life with the way that they speak. I, I write in my book, Evolution of an Unorthodox Rabbi, that I love that well, book. Well, I, I thank you. Well, I, I love being in rabbinical school and study with some great teachers here in L.A. Especially, I found that there was a hole, and I couldn't see that there was a where there in a there there in Reform Judaism, and so I went to David Ellenson, who was then my mm. teacher. This is seventy nine eighty. Later became the president of the Hebrew College, and I said, David. Am I right that there's no there there in Reform Judaism? I don't see it, the ideas, the thickness. And he said, you've stumbled upon our dirty little secret. And I said, well, that's great. I'm in rabbinical school. What do I do? And David, to his credit, said, you go read Joseph Soloveitchik and his student David Hartman. Mm. I did, and the world of their ideas and others became my substantive Jewish world. And it's one that, as a rabbi, I tried to convey to others. I find a lot of rabbis are learned. I mean, most of the rabbis I meet are quite learned in the conservative world, in the reform world. But what I'm hearing is it's not something that's being urged upon their congregations. Is that what I'm hearing? Look, everyone does things differently, and you're going to have rabbis who do that and rabbis who don't. But for the most part, the demands of congregations on a daily basis are such that rabbis don't have the time to do that. And second, the demands are such that tikkun olam takes precedence over learning. Mm -hmm. I think that's a mistake, but that's the reality of our world today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who are the I mean, they, they got such great names, you know, just, I mean, David Wolpe is so learned. I mean, talk about ideas, and he has brilliant ideas, and when they write, I was this morning, I, I stumbled on a rabbi in Washington area, trying to find the name, who wrote this most beautiful piece on Yom Kippur. He's a conservative rabbi. I find some amazing ideas and thoughts 
in the non-Orthodox world? There are, to be sure, and David Wolpe is the rabbi par excellence, but there are others as well. Cliff Liebrach, mm -hmm. um, who wrote a piece recently, I forget where it was, Tablet maybe, um, on the abandonment of peoplehood by the Jews, is a learned guy. Um, and there are lots of others, men and women. Um, but I mean, Eddie Feinstein. Is just Eddie brilliant. Feinstein as well. Um, yeah, and there's there so many. There's so yeah. many. There's the uh, some in New York, all over the country, and it's just. Uh, it, it, I mean, it seems that there's a disconnect there because if learning is so important, then this is something that uh, needs to be. And I and I, it, I, I think they sort of realize it a little bit, don't they? Like in the reform movement, there's a little bit of a return back to tradition. Um, there's a return to tradition, but my fear on a superficial level. It's mm -hmm. not so much the tradition as it is, let's say, customs that are uh, appealing, both privately and publicly. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, then you know, it's easy to fall back on numbers and to say that the reform movement is the largest Jewish movement in America, right? But these numbers, uh, there's a, you know, a sense that with the decades, it's going to evaporate. Right with intermarriage and so forth. So what looks okay now, just time is not on their side. It also depends on who's counting and how they count numbers. Right. Um, I'm not sure that the numbers are accurate exactly. Because um, I wouldn't want to see a, an America, John, that's just 90% Orthodox. You know, where just the you know even if you project out the numbers 50 to 100 years from now. You know, I think the I would love to see a thriving non-orthodox community in America. Well, that's why those communities are so important. Um, the non-orthodox communities—that's where mm -hmm. the many people are, and you might as well reach them where they're at. That should be your next and, book. Th and the rabbis, many of the rabbis are very talented and very passionate. They work very hard at this, but I think they're often too busy at the grind of daily stuff as mm -hmm. opposed to the big ideas. How do we keep the people? How do we inspire the people? How do we inspire, as you're suggesting, a non-Orthodox Judaism that's thick, appealing, fits the American model, but is also yeah, fundamentally Jewish? It should be your next book, really, because you have one of several potential ideas. So the one you mentioned is on Aliyah, but I'm sure there can be a whole bunch more just to fill, fill it all in because there are so many things at play here. One of them is the focus on the experience. So we got this great band, great music, and you're going to have an amazing two hours, right? And you're going to feel great during those two hours, and that's fine as far as it goes. That's not learning. That's not thick, right? So I think there's been a, a, a large emphasis on experiential, we make you feel at home. Right. Uh, we build relationships, right. and you feel comfortable. We have like a great experience during those two, three hours. We make it easy for you to pray. Blah blah blah. We have a great sermon. It's not learning, right? right? So I don't know. I think the I think there's a book there because it's also what kind of learning. There, there's a book there, but I'm not going to be the one <laughs> to write it. Eddie Who Feinstein. Is? Eddie Feinstein can write it. Jeffrey Saul can write it. Cliff Libra can write mm -hmm. it. There are others. My next book, after I finish this memoir, I hope will be on Africa. Africa and the beginnings of the book of Genesis. Mm. That's what I want to write about. Wow. Well, you know, we had a, a piece recently that I mentioned My uh, David Mamet wrote for the journal and he goes back to the, the Bible, to the city of angels, and he says, you know, where we are determines what we write. So if you hang out in Africa long enough, your writing will change. No question. You know? Yeah. And it could be that living in Toronto has influenced your writing. It could be that the stuff I write here in L.A. would have been completely different had I moved to New York instead so of L.A. So you have to come with me to Africa. You'll be changed <laughs> by the savannas, by the animals, and by being in the place where we broke off from our animal cousins. It will blow your mind, I promise you. Well, I mean, just the images that I've seen are so yeah. transcendent. Yeah. I would add, by the way, back to our previous part of the conversation, that uh, Mordechai Finley would be a great person to write about 
Judaism Today. Alison Wissett is another. Mm. There are a bunch of people who'd write well. Yeah, I mean, Finley, you know, did a cover story for us on happiness that made waves across the country. He did, you know. I saw it. He dug in it. and said, you he know, Job. Yeah. Job was the happiest character in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. My God, we got reactions from Harvard on that. Yeah. It's amazing because he went yeah. really deep. Um, and, and he's counterintuitive, Mordechai. Yeah, you use that word. Yeah, I like the word. In your piece. Yeah. It's counterintuitive. So, so do, you, do you see hope for the future? I, the hope I see... For the Jewish people? Yes, I, I do, but it's largely in Israel. Israel is the center of the Jewish people. Uh, it's a remarkable country. Think of all the things that are happening. Think of all the countries that now run to Israel to learn from Israelis about different technological developments, different innovations. I think that's the hope of the Jews. I'm less hopeful about a diaspora Judaism, but I also hope that I'm wrong about that. I love diaspora Judaism as much as I love Israel. I just feel there's, um, there's just something so powerful here, you know, and even among those who deeply love Israel, there's something powerful about sharing that love for Israel throughout the diaspora. And I think the Judaism of the diaspora could be really rich and, and, and complementary to the Judaism of Israel. You know, I think my friend Chaim Seidler Feller once said to me uh, that in Israel, you know, where they came home, you run the risk of losing the humility that you had in exile. Mm. So the, the exile, you need to keep the mindset of exile, mm -hmm. you know, when you live mm -hmm. in Israel. That's mm -hmm. the challenge. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're in the diaspora, you need to keep the mindset of returning home. It's a great way to put it. You know? It's great. And, and in a way, that we need both. Mm -hmm. We need both Judaism. We need the mm -hmm. Judaism of the diaspora and the Judaism of these. Mm -hmm. It's Jewish a great way homeland. to put it. Chaim is right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Chaim. Haven't talked to you in a while. Very good. Well, John, talk to us about before I let you go. I want to hear about your, your next book that you've been working on. This is the. Um, it's half memoir, half uh, social history, um, which um, is um, inspired by the fact that even though I left the left, I actually still love the left, specifically the people who influenced me and taught me, and most specifically people like Tom Hayden. Um, Hayden gets a bad press, both from his critics to his left, the late Tom Hayden now, and the critics to his right, they all said he was an opportunist. And he was, but so were we all. And I learned a great deal from Hayden, both privately and publicly. And this is a book which traces my uh, experience as a 20-year-old when I was close with Hayden and Fonda, and as I said to you earlier, hosted Huey Newton and other such characters. Um, and traces that period of time and then why as I learned about Judaism I left the left intellectually mm -hmm. are you tempted to make the connection to what's happening today it's for when you know, when you started this book we, we didn't have the craziness that we have now this country has never been so chaotic and crazy and divided and filled with anger and are you tempted to sort of include in your book some kind of connection to what's happening now? I'm tempted, but it, it will be less about Trump. I actually hope I won't mention Trump's name in the book. I said the word. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's more about my, as I've said, my ambivalent relationship with the left mm -hmm. and how it is that the reform movement in particular has lurched way left, even as the people haven't lurched quite. The leaders have lurched way left, and the people perhaps... Um, not so much. Well, that's the connection then to today. Because Perhaps. There are, yeah. we, we might see repercussions yeah. of that today, so I'd like to urge you and to I'll, include a chapter on that. I'll, I'll say one other thing, and I'm not going to reveal the specifics because I've been told not to. But I spent time with Hayden when he was dying, um, two years ago now, in fact, in the rehabilitation hospital in Santa Monica. And I went to see him as I was writing this book to ask him very specific questions about his relationship to violence in 1969 when he called for arming the Panthers in, in Oakland. 
And we had uh, a deep conversation about that. And he answered every single one of my questions except one. You'll have to read the book to see which one he didn't answer. But as I was leaving, he said, wait a minute. You came to talk to me about um, the left and violence. I want to talk to you about Israel. And I said, okay, but I got I to gotta go. I had to leave that day. He said, come back on Sunday. I did. And we had a profound conversation about his relationship with um, Israel. And mm -hmm. he said some very surprising things, which took me by, I was rather stunned. On one level, yes, it was the confession of a dying man to a rabbi, a Catholic to a Jew. But it was also mentor to student and friend to friend. It was a very intimate conversation, and I'll be recounting it in the book. Oh, well, it makes me think of uh, the unfortunate situation of Israel's image amongst such a big part of America and in, in the popular culture, including Hollywood and academia and the media and so forth. Unfortunately, Israel's become, uh, I don't want to use the word dirty word, but it's become a problematic word. It's kind of sad. It's something like that. And Hayden didn't agree with that. That was mm -hmm. the gist of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, after the essence, uh, sharing the essence of what he wanted to share with me, he said, listen, don't think I'm a BB man. I'm an Amos Oz guy. Mm. But I understand the relationship, he said, between Amos Oz and BB. They're part of the same, these are my words, not his, but part of the same Jewish people. I, I love how Amos Oz criticizes Israel. He's just got the way with words. He said, you know, uh, I can't stand Israel, but I love it, right? Distinguishes uh, between the two. He says, sometimes I can't stand it. Right. Uh, yeah, but. You know, you were mentioning a possible piece you might write for the journal. Can you give us an idea what that would be? I think I had the word vex in it. The piece is called uh, What Vexes Me Most. And in some ways, it's a, um, a continuation of the piece you've seen in the last uh, couple of days, the counterintuitive piece, which is going to be in the Canadian Jews, Jewish News Jewish this news. week and, and in your paper if you want to put it in. Uh, it's a continuation of that, and it's about what bewilders me about my own liberal Jewish world and the um, um, on the one hand, the claim of loving Israel, and on the other hand, the reality of I'll use a strong word here, undermining Israel. Mm -hmm. Not like Amos Oz, where he says, well, there are things I hate and there are things I love. He's talking as an insider. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about we who are insiders, outsiders. Mm. And um, that's what bewilders me. I'll send it to you in the next week or two. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, John Moskowitz, my friend, thank you so much, first of all, for coming to L.A. And please come back again. I would love to, David. All right. Love you. what you do here at the Journal. Fantastic. Thanks. Thank you. Pleasure.